This is part one of a two-part conversation between Religica Theolab founder Michael Reed Trice and Mark Chenin, who serves as professor of law at the Seattle University School of Law. Chenin received his Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School before going on to receive his law degree from Harvard Law School. More recently, Chenin has dedicated time to writing on artificial intelligence and legal responsibility. In this episode, Dr. Trice and Chenin speak about the development of machine learning, AI's capacity for empathy, and the moral conflict of embracing the uncanny. Take a listen. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today on this podcast. Uh, and one of the things I want to recognize for the listener is your interest personally and professionally in artificial intelligence. You've been asked to really be participating in that and are able to draw on uh, your master's of divinity degree, I, I imagine, as well as your law degree in a deeper discussion you're engaged in on artificial intelligence and faith. So for the listener who, who may not know much about this, what counts for artificial intelligence in the conversations you're engaged in? What is it? Yeah, that's a really good uh, uh, question, Mike. So there's really no generally accepted definition of artificial intelligence, intelligence for that matter. But generally speaking, when, we, when folks talk about artificial intelligence now, it's the ability primarily via computers to perform certain kinds of tasks that require relatively high degree of sophistication without human intervention. And intelligence itself, help me understand this and the listener to understand it in this work. Intelligence itself, you would think involves some form of self-reflection, but not necessarily. Is it instead, maybe not always self-reflection, but the capacity to, as you're mentioning, to perform certain tasks, to reach certain stated goals without necessarily reflecting on why it is I'm doing what I do? That's right. I don't think anyone would say that... um, computers are able to engage in this kind of self-reflection that we're capable of engaging in. What you might say, though, is in order to perform some of the tasks that we're talking about in this sophisticated way, the intelligence or the system, the program does have to be, there must be some way of it uh, sensing its environment and then uh, responding. And maybe even a little bit more, maybe it needs to be able to sort of retain some of its experiences and then modify future behavior based on those experiences, what it's quote-unquote learned, then to perform that task in a more efficient way. Is this one of the reasons why early experiments into this day, say with DeepMind or these other kinds of really impressive systems, why they play games such as chess or any kind of game that you're able to learn something and maybe learn a kind of corrective to what would have been a failure before, and by virtue of that, kind of lead your way toward a success. And does that, does that change the algorithm? Does it change the learning such that I wouldn't repeat that same mistake again? That's a really interesting uh, as our illustration of, of, this, of this larger point, because uh, the history of uh, my understanding, I'm not an expert in this at all, but my understanding of, uh, say, computerized chess is that it really was a kind of an attempt you know, to see if computers could replicate a human being that is engaged in what was recognized, you know, it's a very difficult task playing this game. And you can almost trace the history of the development of artificial intelligence by looking at these attempts to teach computers how to play chess. But, um, you know, I think the long and short of it is that one approach was, you know, to have plotted out every possible move in, in chess and to be able to understand possible combinations and then Kind of a teach the computer, but really was allow the computer to access this vast store of knowledge regarding possible moves, possible results. Uh, but more recently, 
Another approach has been simply to teach as it were the rules of chess and then have the computers play one another in rivalrous games, et cetera, and then build their knowledge that way. And that has apparently been successful. So you can see that uh, represents, I, at least in my view, a major leap in, in what we mean by you know, a computer being able to, to play chess, because it's literally learning how to do that by playing a countless number of games with itself or with other computers, essentially. We're at the stage of development right now of artificial intelligence, it, it will be quite some time before it maybe and maybe theoretically it's impossible for it to reach a uh, general intelligence that is to be as quote unquote smart as we are. But a lot of uh, commentators think that as soon as AI reaches that level, it will very quickly emerge into a super intelligence in that it will just exceed our own capacities. And one reason is what you mentioned is it can engage in countless iterations of experience essentially and learn from it. Whereas of course we as individuals aren't, aren't able to do that. I'm curious about the difference between when artificial intelligence in a more advanced state, let's say, experience, how it experiences empathy. So my niece falls, skins her knee. The moment that a form of intelligence is able to see that and not be reduced to pre-programmed associations of empathy, like I, I should be demonstrating that I'm experiencing empathy, let's say, but instead through volition moves toward and actually has an expression or not more than expression, I should say, an experience of empathy itself. Experience-based wisdom, perhaps, that would be a part of an artificial intelligence system that is able to recognize inside itself, how, whatever that means, it's a complicated discourse, is it? Is able to internalize the fact that it is experiencing empathy as it is experiencing it and choosing to react toward empathy. That's of a higher order than where we are now. So, but 50 years from now, do you think, what's your sense that those kinds of systems may be able to have or demonstrate some means of maybe empathy? Or is there some other quality that you might say, when machines are able to do that, that's when we'll have crossed a threshold. I think uh, your question raises uh, obviously a number of very difficult questions because one, uh, the idea of empathy, empathy, at least to me, raises issues of consciousness. As, you, as you're aware, you know, there's much debate in the literature as to what consciousness is, how one might explain it. Is it purely neurological? Is there something else that, as it were, gives rise to it? Uh, is it really possible or are we just imagining these kinds of things? Uh, and then, of course, that translates into artificial intelligence as to whether one could create a machine or a program that has that kind of as we're experience, as you're describing it, a, a kind of a self-awareness, let alone awareness of someone else. And then to have some kind of what we would term an emotional uh, reaction to what is going on with that other person, to empathize with that person. And in, in, in a sense, that's unanswerable at this point. But what I can say is research that's being done, and this is still you know, obviously very cutting edge, to, as, as it were, to create what you might call analogs to those various kinds of states of mind that we experience as a, emotions or empathy, et cetera. I, I don't think anyone's going to argue that whether they need to right? Their form of consciousness might look very different from the way we understand it because we're biologically based. And uh, maybe that's not necessary, some people argue, to create a machine that does that. 
And then going back to your illustration, you know, if you see whether we would say the machine has reached this level when uh, it reacts to your, your daughter, someone falling and responding in empathy. Uh, you know, that raises some, some of the questions we ask about, say, Alan Turing's test of intelligence. What or why does it matter what, as it were, the internal motivations are of, of an agent as they're responding to me? I mean, I think we have a lot of good answers to that. But at the end of the day, do we really need that um, when it comes to, say, using robots for home care, assisting, for example, lifting people from beds to wheelchairs, et cetera, those kinds of things. Do we need those devices to have those same kinds of that empathy, particularly at this point in time where what people foresee is artificial intelligences and devices, et cetera, working in tandem with human beings as they're engaged, say, in caregiving, as an example. So maybe we don't yet need the artificial intelligence to have that same kind of empathy because a human, it will always be in, in uh, connection with, with humans that are engaged in this activity as well. Just two thoughts. One is how much we already benefit from forms of artificial intelligence that are able to enact certain procedures, let's say medical procedures, and life-saving operations that human beings are not able at that level of precision to be able to operationalize. But, but these, these machines, this intelligence can, and has very effectively done so and demonstrated that it's saved, saved lives. And that's very hopeful in that regard. The, the question I might ask, the analog of intelligence is, is fascinating to me as well. I understand it as a corollary, let's say, you know, I'm feeling empathy. I see this machine seems to be expressing empathy. And in some ways, with an analog or correlation to my experience as a human being, as you mentioned, I'm kind of biochemical, I've got other things going on. And I have expectations for how empathy appears because we desire to be in community or we desire to be connected with one another. And there are certain features of authenticity that are important. One of those is sincerity. And the question of analog, as you mentioned, is interesting to me because it brings up the challenge of what's uncanny. I think this was Freud's word, the sense of the uncanniness factor that something can get to the point where it looks so much like me or operates so much like me by analog that it might undermine my very capacity to identify with it or communicate with it because it's yeah. right. It's so similar that it, it unnerves me that what is being experienced there is not empathy as I experience it or would name it. It breaks apart the bonds of authenticity and community. What do you make of that? I, I think that's a, a, a great observation because um, it's funny you mentioned that term, uh, uncanny, uh, because there is something called the uncanny valley with regard to artificial intelligence. And the idea, as you just described it, is that there appears to be a point, you know, this might be culturally determined, et cetera, though, that the more human-like the artificial intelligence has become, human beings start to react negatively to that. There seems to be this way in which you just are repelled by the similarities of the system because that's acknowledged as a real human response. And there's an, you know, an entire science, as it were, on the interaction between human beings and computers and, and then as a subfield with regard to artificial intelligence. Uh, the whole idea of studying human responses, say, to care robots and children's toys, all of those kinds of things which are attempting to actually move past or move, move human beings past that valley, which of course raises these other kinds of ethical questions is, 
why or should we listen to that negative response? Or should we should we seek ways in which we rid ourselves of that revulsion or you know that negative reaction to artificial intelligence? Because apparently there might be ways in which we can do that. We know that there are public parks where the birds there, their, their chirps change because they're imitating cell phones that they hear around. So what happens is the analog, the analog changes the way the birds associate with one another, maybe in a similar fashion to your last point, the child's toy by analog demonstrates to me at a very young age and an impressionable age, how I would indeed engage with others and that the analog in like manner is impacting my own educational or human formation. Yeah, that uh, is a real concern that um, human beings are evolving along with the technology. For example, we could ask ourselves a question whether our understandings of privacy have been altered. And perhaps uh, maybe this runs along gener generational lines that uh, whereas those of us who are older might have you know, very strong expectations of privacy when it comes to cell phone data, location, all those kinds of things. Maybe folks who, you know, have spent, who all their lives have, all they've known are, are these kinds of devices might not have the same kinds of expectations. And of course, that's just one example of the ways in which our interactions with this technology might be affecting us as people and changing our expectations of what we think is proper behavior, what we think it means to be treated the same with dignity. What does it mean to have a private life? So, and I don't, I don't know if we have the answer to that yet. We do have these long, as human beings, these long-standing connections with other species. The more we have artificial intelligence around us, as it develops, perhaps as we evolve as well, it seems to me we will have developed connection with these new forms. One way in which that might happen, I could imagine, would be a kind of cross-generational memory, that there's some form of artificial intelligence that is able to remember in family systems how our great, 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 great grandparents would have resolved an issue or thought about something. So there's a kind of living memory that this entity is drawing forward. And that's very helpful, I think. On the other hand, maybe there's an assumption that we often make. Our humanity is here and artificial intelligence is over there. But in fact, as these systems evolve and we evolve as human beings, and as this technology, as technology does, becomes really saturated in our daily lives. I'm wearing eyeglasses, you know, that's out of a technological advancement that allows me to see more clearly. We're looking at each other through a computer screen. We're always in participation with the technology. Are you aware or are you tracking any of these conversations really where you have this, um, this sense of the hybridity? Not so much dual, you know, dualism between where technology is leading us and where we are going as a species. Uh, again, I, I, I do think we're sort of at the beginning of those conversations and just entering the stage where artificial intelligence is becoming sophisticated enough that needs to become really serious or more pressing questions. But there's no doubt that as artificial intelligence becomes more sophisticated, these will be even more important. There's been work even with you know, non-intelligent devices, you know, anecdotal reports of, say, uh, soldiers forming emotional attachments with, what was it, a bomb remover um, in, in the field. And um, certainly that happens, as you mentioned, this illustration of uh, chimpanzee and their handler, uh, that happens with service animals in those used in combat, those kinds of things. 
So you're right to recognize that we humans do have this innate need for emotional attachment. You know, sometimes obviously that I think that speaks to a legitimate and real human need. And then the question is whether we want to acknowledge that and then in, and enable that to have us form attachments and relationships with artificial intelligence. And again, there's research being done on this. And there's also, as you can imagine, because of the commercial incentives for say, for example, like care robots and children's toys and all those kinds of things. Again, to you know, just get close to that uncanny valley as possible. Uh, and you know, maybe even take advantage of our propensity to anthropomorphize and then form these relationships. Of course, that raises serious ethical questions about, about whether we want that to happen. And then more to your point, you know, those you could argue that what I'm talking about so far are these kinds of one-on-one binary interactions. After a while, you know, let's you know, let's imagine that our artificial intelligence is able, let's say, a care robot, is sophisticated enough to recognize our moods just by the tone of our voice, and then come up with a, what we would consider an appropriate response. Maybe it could recommend music. It could actually probably instruct the equivalent of Siri or Alexa in the home to play music that responds to us, you know, keeps our calendar, all these kinds of things. You can imagine how easy it would be for us, particularly if this is a very sophisticated device, maybe using human language in a way that is quite indistinguishable from human speech. Uh, We might form these attachments. If you look back at religious traditions or spiritual pathways, indigenous wisdom, just arcing back over the course of time that we have as a species, cross-culturally, around the world, wherever we may be, we really value the story. And the story, whatever it may be, is told around smaller circles first, and some of those stories become more expansive, perhaps, in a religion that might gain a particular doctrinal value for millions, even billions of people. But even the localized story is important for us. And, and telling the story where elders tell stories or children tell stories is reaffirmation of memory that's so important to our collective well-being. And maybe one of the reasons that's true is because we see that every story has seeds of wisdom inside of it. And we recognize that as authentic. If that's a feature of intelligence, are we anticipating that artificial intelligence will be of an aptitude to be able to tell its own story that wisdom itself, as a characteristic of intelligence and self-reflection, you know, this is a kind of barometer of self-reflection, that I'm able to articulate the narrative of my own coming into existence in whatever form it may take that needs to be shared with others so that they too can benefit from that. Let's think about the use of artificial intelligence to create narratives for human beings. I could easily foresee, and it's already happening, where artificial intelligence can generate a literature, let's say a fiction or a story, as you say, you know, the equivalent of a, of a parable or something that we would read or hear in the story form, and we would, as it were, gain something from it. It would be as if our experience of that story might be one as we hear and ex- experience from all of the great traditions that you're describing in whichever you know, narrative or story or parable, et cetera, that informs that tradition. That uh, I can easily, we could easily see happening. What we do with that, I don't know, but I, I can see that as a possibility. When we start talking about intelligences telling story their own stories, then we would ask the question, what functions do those stories perform? 
what are a few possible machine equivalents of the functions that those stories perform for us? In what sense would it be helpful for machines to come up with an analog of what stories do for us and then share it with other machines or devices or intelligences? Those stories might be unintelligible to us that they tell to, to, to each other. We would not even be able to recognize why that's being done or what the meaning is. I mean, we can't have a conversation with this without identifying kind of the, the B-rated movie version of artificial intelligence, which is, you know, the term Terminator scenario where precisely that's happening. There's an internal dialogue and it self-regulates its own future and realizes that it's not so great to have humans around. We're taking up too much space, perhaps. We're just not advantageous to its own future. But in the meantime, you know, with your work on the anthropomorphizing of this relationship, it dawns on me, even where you have you know, artificial intelligence paired with you know, a synthetic development where the, the mastering you want a smile looks like or a glint in an eye or kind of developing this, this capacity to communicate, really. But maybe it's, it's more than anything to make us comfortable, going back to this issue of the uncanny valley, to cross the valley and recognize, as you mentioned, okay, this is an analog form of intelligence. It's hard to evaluate it in my, on my own, but it is smiling at me in the way that I'm recognizing it's smiling, right? I, I'm projecting onto that surface what a smile looks like, and it is testing that and learning from it in terms of how I respond. And there is a kind of relationship somehow there. It may not be a human-to-human -human form of a relationship, but certainly something is taking place, either in projection or mirroring or analoging or and maybe that's not so bad if we were able to get there even in the next, say, 50 years in a way that had a certain precision to it. That's right. I think, you know, earlier you had said that one of the attractions of artificial intelligence is its enormous upside potential, right, for good in any of the domains of life that affect us, you know, on a daily basis. And one of those things might be, you know, you were mentioning convenience, and that uh, is a reality it might be so ubiquitous that it just becomes part of the background, right, of our experience. We don't even notice that these devices that sort of are at work. Some ethicists in this area would say, you know, as long as the human is aware that it is engaged with an artificial intelligence, that should be enough. As long as the human is not fooled into thinking it is dealing with another human being, then ethical, ethical questions have been largely resolved. If we find ourselves dealing almost maybe say half the time with artificial intelligences and half the time with human beings, then what, what happens if we have to make choices between the two? You've been listening to part one of a two-part conversation between Dr. Michael Reed Trice and Mark Chinen, hosted by the Religica Theo Lab at the Center for Religious Wisdom and World Affairs at Seattle University. For more from the Religica Theolab podcast, visit us online at religica.org and stay tuned for part two.